Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, the U.S. has spent more than half of $3 trillion in economic rescue funds passed by Congress. However, with little of the oversight intended to ensure that the money goes to the right places. To get more color on this, we welcome Lord Davison She wrote a fantastic story on this. She's a congressional tax reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from on the phone from Washington, D.C. So, Laura, how can a billion and a half dollars be spent with little to no oversight? Well, part of this is, was the way that Congress designed it, is they wanted to get a bunch of money into the economy really quickly. You know, those stimulus checks that went out, these those PPP loans, all of these things, because people and businesses needed money right away as the economy basically ground to a halt in March. The problem, though, is, as we're finding out, is that when you move quickly, uh, you sometimes break things and there are problems and, and there's no one there watching uh, how the money's being spent, who it's going to. So it opens up a lot of doors for, for potential for fraud um, or, or as well as just, you know, things that, that aren't spent in the, in the best way. So, well, Laura, who was supposed to be watching this? Um, well, it's not just Secretary Mnuchin. There were supposed to be some bodies watching this, right? Yes, yeah, there's actually a bunch of different groups. So there's a there's a group in Congress that, that's overseeing this. Um, they are really uh, just getting started. The, they, um, it's a bipartisan group. Both uh, Pelosi and McConnell get to appoint people, but there's been a lot of disagreement over who should be chairman. It has to be a bipartisan pick. They've been back and forth on this for several uh, months, and they haven't been able to agree on someone. So so that group, is, while it exists, has, has not really been able to do much yet. There's also um, a new special inspector general um, that will be overseeing a lot of this money. Um, that pick was just uh, approved earlier this month. He really doesn't even have an office space yet. So this is, a, a, you know, you're, you're really talking about people that don't have letterhead paper. They don't have, you know, a, a phone system. So there's, there's really not infrastructure for them to even, you know, send emails, much less conduct a lot of big oversight work. Yeah, the SBA reporting that loans have been approved for 4.6 million small businesses already, Laura, $513 billion worth. So there's still about $130 billion in funding remaining. Will it be all, you know, applied for, if you like, because what do you get, like two months and you have to keep everybody on your staff? And, you know, a lot of small businesses are not even applying for it because in two months' time it may not it may not be worth it for them to have 75% of their staff on their payroll still. Yes, yeah. So there's, as you mentioned, there's about $130 billion left in that pot of funds and, and applications for that money close at the end of the month. And it, it's very likely that there will be tens of billions, if not more than $100 billion um, left um, of that money. So the question is sort of what happens with it? Does Congress reappropriate that for, for other purposes? Maybe um, businesses who have already gotten some money could come back for, for a second loan. Those are all, you know, kind of things that, that Congress is still having to think about right now. Um, and and But it's, it's very likely that, that there will be a, some money left because a lot of businesses have decided that it's either to apply for this money or, uh, you know, there's also some political risks, as we saw with with larger companies who applied, qualified for the money, but, uh, you know, Shake Shack and and Potbellies who who were then, um, you know, shamed by by politicians saying, hey, this is really should be for the the little guys. So, Laura, is there, you know, Tim O'Brien was on with us earlier today. He has a column out suggesting that a lot of this money is not getting to the small business owner, maybe the small business owner of color, some of the folks who really need it the most. Is there concern within Washington that this program is not being uh, 
the money is not being spent uh, correctly or wisely? There's a lot of concern, particularly um, from Democrats on the, um, on the the minority issue of if, is this money going to rural communities, to my, uh, minority communities, uh, to, to underserved communities. Uh, there's been several hearings on Capitol Hill, and, and there's a big push uh, um, on Secretary Mnuchin to release sort of the granular level uh, data on the program, you know, which businesses have received this money and how much they've gotten. Mnuchin said last week that he was not planning to release that. And since then, you've seen um, a big uh, outcry from, from members of both parties saying, hey, you know, this is, this is taxpayer money. We should be able to see where it's going. I mean, the problem with opening an investigation now is that, as you say, you know, more than $500 billion of this has already been dispersed. So if there has been fraud, what happens to that money? And will it be too late for the small businesses that ended up having to close because they weren't able to get access to some of that money in the early days? You know, that, that's a really good question. There's a lot of unknowns there, you know, in terms of recouping some of the money. You know, the, the, if there is, you know, cases of outright fraud, you know, the government could go and, and pursue legal action against that. But if, if it's just sort of a, you know, the money didn't maybe wasn't allocated in the best way possible and um, some businesses uh, got fell through the cracks, that's really more of a question for Congress of do they want to have um, a second uh, loan program for, for some of these businesses that didn't get help the first round. Uh, that's certainly possible, though. That would be very politically difficult right now if there's lots of debate in Washington about if there should be another stimulus bill, and if so, how much should that encompass? Yeah, it's a great story, Laura. I, I mean, we've, we've heard, you know, some hedge funds have applied for this and so on, but you, you point <laughs> to the reality television personality who tapped a $2 million loan from the PPP and uh, actually went and, and bought some diamond jewellery and a Rolex watch, because who can't... <laughs> Who, who can't have a Rolex watch and diamond jewellery together at the same time? Laura, thank you for joining us today. That is Laura Davison, Congressional Tax Reporter for Bloomberg. Boy, is she going to be busy Yeah. between now and November and then beyond November, no doubt, as well, Paul. Yeah, because I think there's, uh, you know, the next thing coming down, Bonnie, is another piece of fiscal stimulus coming from Congress. So, uh, and that'll be much more political than I think this uh, most recent package of $3 trillion. Exactly. And, uh, you know, you, you just have to wonder if it's going to be as big a package and when it will come and, you know, if it will start to, to, to get into election season at that point and how that will impact things. Time now to look ahead to the Fed Chair's second day of his Humphrey Hawkins testimony on Capitol Hill today. We'll digest what he said yesterday and also pose some questions, some pointed questions to our next guest, who is Christina Hooper, Chief Global Market Strategist at Invesco Assets under management there of more than a trillion dollars. Christina, you were watching the Fed Chair's performance last week very, very closely, as is everybody right now. What do you think the Fed is responsible for in these markets, not the economy, but just in these markets. I was reading Roberto Perle of Cornerstone the other day, and he talks about looking at more than 10 million different valuation models for the S&P 500 and finding that 97% of them say the S&P 500 is overvalued today by a weighted average of about 12 percentage points. What say you? I would agree. Uh, There is a lot that Fed Chair Powell is responsible for. He has created an enormous amount of confidence in markets, um, but in doing so, he has also created, um, uh, or I should say, has skewed risk-reward profiles for different asset classes. Now, this is nothing new. We saw this happen during the global financial crisis when the Fed stepped in 
with what was then very extraordinary monetary policy, and it really altered the risk-reward profiles. Uh, Treasuries um, were altered as well as stocks. Um, What's interesting is this time around, the Fed has been much more expansive in the kind of policy tools it's using, and so it's altering a lot of risk assets, not just stocks. But in particular, stocks have certainly benefited, and I would argue the Fed has decoupled the stock market from the economy. So, Christina, given that last comment that perhaps the Fed has decoupled the stock market from the economy, as an equity investor, what are you doing now? Well, what you need to do is, of course, maintain a focus on the long term. Be well diversified, but have adequate exposure to risk assets. We're actually in a better place than we were during the global financial crisis just because we saw how that played out. Um, And, of course, Investors need to maintain exposure to risk assets. In fact, perhaps the biggest lesson learned from the global financial crisis was to not get out um, when you get scared. Um, Stay in, stay diversified, um, but don't lock in your losses and stand on the sidelines. One thing we know about stretched valuations is that they are not predictive of performance in the short run. And so it's one of those things where investors need to be well diversified, hold their nose, and maintain long-term allocations. How do you define the short term in these times, Christina? Is there a different definition of time when we're in a pandemic? <laughs> well, that could very well be the case. But what we, ha- you know, what we have to recognize is that there is not a lot of insight into what's going to happen uh, in the coming months. Right? We have more than one in three companies in the S&P 500 have dispensed with earnings guidance this year. Now, that really sends a message about how cloudy um, things are. And so, of course, investors need to look longer term because it is very, very difficult to look in the short run. And we need to look at a variety of different factors because the shape of this economic recovery will be dictated by the events that unfold from here in terms of the kind of fiscal stimulus that is passed going forward, uh, as well as the kind of developments we see on the health front. We still know so little about this virus. We're learning more and more each day about how it can be controlled, uh, and we're learning more and more based on the kind of events that are occurring, uh, Black, Black Lives Matter protests, and the kind of infection rates coming out of that, um, the kind of infection rates coming out of reopening of economies. So we're learning more each day, and we're also working on the development of therapies and ultimately an effective vaccine. So all those different factors are going to dictate the course of the economic recovery. But one key thing to remember is that the stock market has largely decoupled from that economy. So, Christina, how do you feel about valuation right here? We've had a a really strong rebound off the bottom that we saw kind of late March, early April. Yet, you know, the earnings uh, have just been dismal there in the first quarter, going to be even worse here in the second quarter. How do you feel about valuation? Well, valuations are certainly stretched. Um, But this is an environment where um, much has been altered by what the Fed has done. And especially in an environment where yield has become even more scarce, investors have to make trade-offs. They need to be well diversified, but they can't walk away from exposure to risk assets like stocks. So it's about finding pockets of attractive valuations to balance out the more expensive parts of the market. Um, That includes exposure outside the U.S., 
there are parts of emerging markets that look very attractive from a valuation standpoint and also look attractive in terms of where they are with regards to the economic recovery. Christina, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your thoughts and perspective. As always, Christina Hooper, Chief Global Market Strategist for Invesco based in Atlanta. Uh, so, Vonnie, I think, you know, the issue here is, you know, this market has moved higher off the bottom. Earnings, you know, not necessarily there. But I think my key takeaway from Christina's uh, comments was how she feels like the market is really disconnected uh, perhaps from the underlying economy. Yeah, and I think that you'll see that reflected in a lot of commentary these days. Even Roberto Perley, who I quoted at the beginning of the interview, even he says that from a purely statistical perspective, we would expect only 3% of the current overvaluation to adjust over the next month, all else equal. So I think the lesson is with the Fed basically underwriting this market across all asset classes, there's really yep. not much to do until something changes. Yeah, I like the I like the uh, uh, characterization that the Fed is backstopping uh, this market here. Well, it seems like we're talking more and more about pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies, as we talk about treatments for COVID and potentially vaccines. Of course, there's always a lot of M&A in this space, and there's always new drugs uh, coming onto the market that can really impact the market. And when we do talk about these things, there's nobody better to chat with them about than Sam Fazelli. He's a director of research in Europe for Bloomberg Intelligence. But as I like to say, his day job is that he is one of the best uh, healthcare analysts in the city of London. Sam, thanks so much for joining us here. Let's start with Lilly here. They, that stock had a pop recently uh, on some breast cancer uh, data coming out. What's the latest on Eli Lilly? First, thank you very much for your very kind words, Paul. Um, Eli Lilly, well, it's not very often that you see a large pharma company share price jump 15, 16. At one point, it was up like 18, 19% yesterday. So they had a success where I think most people had decided there was not going to be one. Um, a drug they have for breast cancer uh, succeeded early, I must say, a year early, uh, earlier than expected in terms of the readout, uh, in preventing um, or reducing the uh, recurrence of disease um, in a post-operative breast cancer patients, in high-risk post-operative breast cancer patients. So that's, that's, it, that's the positive. And, of course, the reason people were, I think, being negative about the possibility was because Pfizer failed in the same setting. Now, this adds significantly to the revenue potential for this drug. Some people calculate up to $4 billion potentially, <clears throat> and that has a major impact on margins. So the rest of the story falls into place. There are people now going up to, uh, you know, staying still. There's another 10% or so upside on the stock, uh, on the sell side. So that's what drove that one up, a complete surprise. Not only did Pfizer fail, but it failed having already had a head start on Eli Lilly by, uh, what, at least uh, two years. And there was also Novartis's Kiskali treatment. Sam, what's happening with that? Yeah, so, so, there is, so just quick to touch on this. There's two ways or reasons why Lilly might have worked um, and where Pfizer did. And Pfizer went into a much earlier patient group, so pa pa patients with much less advanced or, or lower risk disease. So to a degree, Lilly loaded the dice in its favor. Not, not a problem. It just, it's, it's, that means a smaller population of patients. And also the drug is different um, in that it's dosed constantly as opposed to having to take a drug holiday with the other two, including Novartis. Now, Novartis is running a similar trial to, to Lilly, not completely the same, but similar. And they're expecting data by 2022, which therefore might now be mean that it should also read out early. So this is not without competition. 
All right, Sam, let's switch gears a little bit to uh, the topic of the day, COVID-19. You know, folks in the Trump administration certainly talk, they continue to talk about a vaccine availability this calendar year. And as I've, you know, talked to you and read your research and other healthcare research, it's just been years and years and years to get a drug kind of to market here. What is your sense for, you know, the likelihood of uh, the timing of some type of a vaccine into the market here? Yes, so I love the phrase you just used at the end, the timing of some type of vaccine. I think the timing of some type of vaccine is very possible to be by the end of this year. The question is, will we have a vaccine that's been through the best and most rigorous safety and long-term testing? No, it's impossible. Will we have a vaccine that's available for treating people in a world which, God forbid, has a real hardcore second wave in the winter? Um, And take some risk in terms of accept some potential longer-term safety issues, that is something that governments and regulators have to accept if they want to inject people with these vaccines that are just being developed. So will there be one that looks like it's working? Yes. Yeah, and uh, as you say, we likely need several. Sam, during this whole time, I've been wondering why it hasn't been easier to change supply chains, ramp up production on what's needed, send it to the parts of the world that need it. And it seems like all these months later, there is still a shortage of things like N95 masks in places where they're needed, despite all sorts of companies, including 3M, saying that they will you know, swap some of their machines out and, and retool some other machines. Why is this happening in this day and age? Well, I think, you know, I think we potentially underestimate the effort that's required to get these things actually moving. You know, we're dealing with companies that are equivalent of juggernauts and oil tankers. To try and move them quickly is very difficult. Let's give you the opposite argument. Biotech company Moderna wasn't really spending an enormous amount of time just on vaccines. They were working quite a lot on, on, on um, cancer therapies with their technology. But they can turn on a, on a dime and just say, right, we're a small company, we can do what we want. Next thing we're going to do is work on... Uh, um, COVID vaccines, whereas when you've got a massive company that, that needs to retool, etc., it takes time. And let's not forget, it's only been five months. So I don't want to beat them up for this. I think it just takes a lot of time. Raw materials have got to be in the right place. It just takes a lot of time. Yeah, no, I don't certainly don't mean to beat them up. I'm just, I just mm. find the whole thing so curious that if there's a market for it, you know, that it won't come. Yeah. I mean, Moderna, for example, it may not make anything from from making the pivot to, to COVID treatments and COVID research. But anyway, Sam, it's a conversation we will continue. So thanks for joining us today. Sam Fazelli, Bloomberg Intelligence London. He's a, their pharmaceutical expert over there and a great one he is too. As the U.S. economy continues to reopen, we're getting some mixed economic signals. We had retail sales surprised to the upside, uh, but uh, we also had industrial production weaker than expected. And now we have Fed Chair Powell once again warning of uncertainty surrounding uh, the timing and strength of the recovery. So what is an economist to do? We'll put that to Carl Weinberg, Chief Economist at High Frequency Economics. Carl, thanks so much for joining us here. What is your sense of kind of where we are in you know, starting to build uh, perhaps a little bit of a recovery uh, coming out of the pandemic. Hi, Paul. Hi, Vani. Good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. So, you know, recovery is a relative thing right now rather than an absolute thing. You take that uh, retail sales number, 
And compared to expectations, it certainly was stronger than expected, and uh, it certainly was uh, was up. But on a compared to the averages of what we've seen for retail sales in, in the months and the quarters going into uh, the pandemic, we're still way below where we were before, and that's where we're going to be for a long time. We're going to see some growth from month to month, from quarter to quarter, from week to week. We'll see improvement, but we're going to remain in a depressed state for quite some time. Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised there isn't more concentration on the idea that much of the better economic data recently has been 100% thanks to fiscal stimulus as well as monetary policy, obviously, Carl. But once the employment benefits for people that are not employed run out, you're going to have 20 million people out there trying to find jobs when they can't even work. What happens then? Yeah, well, that's what high-frequency economics warned about in our note to clients this morning, you know, that when the supplemental unemployment benefit comes out, there will be a reduction in fiscal stimulus, and that will have to be replaced by something unless, or I should say, or there will be a reduction in retail spending and household incomes and so forth. Uh, the PPP, um, you can look at it in two different ways. One way is to look at it as a uh, an increase in cash flow to businesses that's temporary, and when that goes away, then the benefit goes goes with it. Another way to look at it, which I prefer, is to look at it as a recapitalization, which is a permanent increase in the cash balances of these companies that uh, are being used to, to get through the pandemic for sure, but it's a capital increase. It's an injection, an investment by the government, and for many companies, that will last for a long time. That's a plus. But, of course, there's the income loss that has to be transcended. I think Fed Chair Powell said it best of anyone yesterday. The longer the pandemic goes, the longer the, the, the pandemic continues, the greater the damage to the economy. And therefore, the more fiscal stimulus would have to be implemented in order to offset that. And um, this can only go on for so long, this fiscal stimulus. So let's go to that fiscal stimulus, Carl. We you know, had a bill uh uh, I think advanced by the House several weeks ago, but it doesn't seem to have much support in the Senate or at the White House here. How critical is it to get a fiscal stimulus plan, you know, another fiscal stimulus bill in the next, you know, several weeks or, or months and one that perhaps fo- focuses a little bit more on states and local municipalities? Well, Paul, I, I, I agree with that. We need something if we're not going to fall off a cliff. There's that old saying, the fiscal cliff. And you also want to think not only in terms of weeks and months, but also in terms of of years. If you have, say, $3 trillion worth of fiscal stimulus this year, and you don't put $6 trillion worth of stimulus into the economy next year, then fiscal policy is going to become a drag on growth. And if you just replace $3 trillion with another $3 trillion next year, then fiscal policy becomes neutral. In other words, and and this is just arithmetic, you have to keep on increasing it if you're going to keep on stimulating growth. So we're going to have to face a fiscal cliff problem at some point in time. The government is going to have to stop increasing the stimulus. And it's just a question, it's a race, if you will, and I can't predict the answer as to whether the government will run run out of capacity to increase stimulus before the economy stops being dragged down by this virus. And let's face it, Carl, I mean, this is just the latest problem that was on the horizon for the economy. Before the pandemic even came to our attention, we were already in trouble in terms of trying to replace trade, you know, losses to China and so on, given that there was going to be a trade war. So there's there's other challenges out there too. Why are so many economists looking then for a V-shaped recovery? 
Um, well, I don't know. I mean, the IMF has uh, called for a V-shaped recovery, and no one ever got fired for agreeing with the IMF. But the reality of it is, is that even a V-shaped recovery in terms of growth rates, in other words, if we go back to the growth rates that we enjoyed before, a recovery in growth does not mean a recovery from levels. We would start that growth from a very, very depressed level, 10, 15, 20 percent lower than where we were before. And even if we recover faster than we were going before, it'll take three, four, five, six years to catch up to where we were before. So a V-shaped recovery is, you know, a nice turn of words, but it's not necessarily a prediction of a return to prosperity. We can't expect to get back to where we were for at least the next several years. So, Carl, it seems like an odd time. I'm looking at a story on the Bloomberg today. The U.S. plans a broader reset of its WTO tariff commitments here. It looks like the White House is trying to renegotiate some of these tariffs here. Is this the right time to be doing that, do you think? Uh, heck, Paul, this is never the right time to be tearing down the world uh, globalization progress. You know, uh, the United States has complaints that uh, our tariffs are lower than the tariffs of our trading partners. That's that's the gist of it. And when yep. you're in that situation, you can do three things, all right? Number one, you can do what the Trump administration is doing, which is you can raise your tariffs to match the rest of the world, and that creates a loss. Number two, you can work through organizations like the WTO to try to collectively bring down tariffs where they're too high. That's what we've been doing in the post-World War II period, using the WTO to achieve massive reductions in tariffs around the world. And it's worked, and I don't see why it can't work in the future unless the WTO is taken apart. And then the third thing you can do is you can do nothing and accept that your tariffs are lower than everybody else's and use economic influence, the fact that you're giving other countries an advantage to get into the U.S. market as a way to affect politi to influence political decisions elsewhere, which is the oldest diplomatic game in the world, using economic policy to achieve political influence. But you don't have to raise tariffs in the U.S. in order to level the playing field. That's just the tactic that the Trump administration has chosen. And personally, we at High Frequency Economics don't agree with it. Carl, how much are you thinking about the next election and how it changes the arithmetic? Because if there were to be changes in personnel, some of these conversations would have to start from scratch, right? Uh, yes, the conversations would be different under a different administration. I'm not even going to begin to speculate about what happens with the next administration. As far as I'm concerned, we're pretty much out of time to do a lot of things between now and the election in terms of, you know, broad economic policy and trade policy. So I'm watching to see what happens, and uh, but there will be a different conversation with a different president. Carl, thank you as always. As Carl says, we will not get back to where we were for at least the next several years. Chilling words from Carl Weinberg there of High Frequency Economics. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.